Jen, on behalf of the church, thank you for um, that window. That I think we know how that works now, and we're grateful for your um, the picture that is to us in the in the open door of ministry. Um, so let's talk with Jan before we leave today. Our uh, scripture reading this morning for the sermon is from Philippians chapter 1. I'll be reading uh, beginning in verse 9 through verse 11. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, you have spoken to us through your Son. Let your written word now be spoken and heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May we all be taught by you through your powerful word. Bring every, our every thought captive to obeying Christ. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. Um, I decided somewhere along the way that I probably would have really liked uh, that class in high school that I avoided. Physics. Um, physics was one that I really could have sunk my teeth into, I think. Uh, the, the problem was that it was on the other side of chemistry. You had to go through chemistry to get the physics. And about halfway through the chemistry class, I was given one too many formulas to memorize <laughs> that filled up the entire chalkboard. And it was a chalkboard in those days, but one too many formula. And so when I asked about physics, I said, does it involve formulas? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, no, never mind. But the, the older I get, the more I appreciate how basic and how helpful some of those things are like Motion and the law of inertia. Some of you know this firsthand. Uh, that law is that motionless objects will stay motionless unless acted upon by some force. Corollary is that item, that object, will remain in motion or in that direction unless acted upon by some force. And when we hear that, we've, we've actually seen that. Uh, now I begin to understand how those satellites, once launched from the Earth into the Earth's, into the atmosphere, through the atmosphere, into uh, motion, stay in motion for as long as they do in the direction that they're sent in. Those things, that principle helps us understand a lot of things in this world, like cars and brakes and turns and things that make up our life. But it doesn't really help me understand my spiritual life until I think about it. 
Because the fact is, as I think about my, when I begin to think about my spiritual life, I watch these ups and downs and these twists and turns. I can't stay in motion the same, in the same direction very long, it seems. The difference is, I don't recognize the influences and the forces that are at work in my life. They don't name themselves. It feels like nothing's happening and nothing is happening to, in me because the forces that are at work shape the way I live and the choices I make. There are things at work. And I should be further, it seems. When we were growing up, we would take uh, several times a year a trip from Nashville to East Tennessee to visit relatives there several times a year. And every time we got on I-40 headed east, I didn't know how to really measure it very well. I just watched the road signs. And every time I saw Crossville, I thought, we should be there by now. It shouldn't take this long to get where we're going. And, that, and that's a lot of what it sometimes feels like in our Christian life, that we should be further than we are. Paul is interested in addressing that when he sits down to write from prison the book that we call Philippians. He's writing to a church that he knows well, very fond of, you can tell from the letter. He wants them to know that although he's in prison, he's okay. Uh, he wants to thank them for their continued support. They have met some of his needs, and he is thanking them for that. They've been faithful to him. But his purpose in writing Philippians goes much broader and deeper and further. He is eager above all, and he's concerned that the Philippians continue to make progress in their faith. We know that from verse 25, which we didn't get to, but you can, I'll read it for you and you can ponder this a bit, where he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That's what he's after. And he's talked about it in chapter one a couple of different ways. Some of you will be familiar with that verse six, where he says that, that God will what he began in you, he will, he will complete. The good work he began in you, he will complete. And that's one thing the apostle wants this church and us today to understand and recognize that the progress in your Christian life has a starting point and an author and a finisher. And it's Christ and the one who made you for himself. He is committed to seeing you through and finishing the work that he began. So let's go home. Paul continues to write because that is the starting point and the end point, but there is something else that he is very eager for them to see, and that is there are a couple of things in chapter 1 that he wants them to understand are vital and critical to their making progress in the faith. The first is God's activity. Uh, God's pledge and his promise, the work that he began, he will finish. But as Paul prays to the God who causes these things to happen, 
he engages the people of the church and says, here's what I want to see take place in you. You see, it's God's activity. It's our activity blended together in this thing called sanctification. If you've been around this church a while, you will have learned that justification is an act that takes place once. It's a transaction. It's a legal thing, that a legal status change. You're going from outside the kingdom to inside the kingdom, from unrighteous to closed with the righteousness of Christ. That's justification. Paul here is talking not about that, but the fruit of that and what comes on the other side, like physics on the other side of chemistry, What comes on the other side of justification is sanctification, and that's his prayer. And that's at the heart of our Christian formation plan. What does it mean to be formed in the image and the character of Christ slowly over time by redirecting our lives, by renewing our our wills and reordering our loves? And that's what Paul is after. And that's why Paul prays. Martin Lloyd-Jones notes that, all of, that Paul's prayers are always ordered. Uh, it's a great exercise for you to do some. This would be a great summer project for you, first half of the summer. Uh, reading through and thinking through Paul's prayers uh, for the churches that he writes to. And you'll see some overlap and you'll see some connections. And Lloyd-Jones says they're always ordered. And we're going to see order in this short prayer. Um, like all of Paul's recorded prayers, this one is wholly, so, solely focused on and occupied with their spiritual growth. It's interesting to me that of all the things in those prayers that are recorded, they really have to do with the heart and the mind and the spiritual, spiritual aspects. He will pray for people that are ill. He will pray for circumstances, but, but you don't find those recorded for, for eternity and for the life and the good of the church. What you see is a focus on their spiritual lives. And in doing so, he doesn't contradict what he has just said in verse 6 about this is God's work. Because the grace which saves also energizes Think about that. That's at the heart of Paul's prayer here. The grace that saves also energizes. We're going to come back to that uh, at the end here today. The Christian, saved by grace, demonstrates what has happened by exercising new energies. Demonstrating a changed life by the activity that flows out of it and the orientation of that activity, which Paul gets at here. Paul wants to see them do something. And he said that God is at work in you. And you'll say that it's explicitly in Philippians, doesn't he? God is at work in you. Work out your salvation because God is at work in you. One of the ways God works in us is to call forth personal action. Awakening us, enlivening us, activating and energizing the personal action that Paul prays for uh, in this prayer. By having God, by by having made it possible for us to do something, calls us to do it. God, by working in us, makes us work to his end and for his glory. Um, I looked at... uh, 
as, after I did the preparation on this, I looked to see how a few other uh, scholars and pastors had treated this passage. And, and in various forms, there's, there's continuity to how to understand this prayer. It always comes out because this is an ordered prayer. And he starts with, and you, you could get this, what is Paul praying for? What does he want to see? Why does he want to see it? And how does it occur? Uh, what does Paul want to see? And it starts very simply with the word love. He wants to see in this church and in us today a love that abounds more and more. That's his language. More and more. He said the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 3. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Whatever you're doing, more of it. He's not talking about something that's absent or missing. He's not getting, getting on to them because they're not loving. He's already given them a capacity to love. But what he's saying is yes and more. That love with which you have begun to love one another, that's it. And more. Abounding in love is the, the exact phrasing uh, using to describe a, a bubbling up or a, a flowing out of a spring of water. That's the picture of love bubbling and flowing more and more. It's, it's a word that uh, the word itself is a word that is so common to us that we can miss Paul's concern because he is not praying that they would feel a certain way more and more, feel more love, feel more love for more people. It includes that. It just goes way beyond that. Biblically, love is an affection accompanied by action. That's why God so loved the world that it was action that followed. It's not a sentiment. So don't get lost in the weeds there. It's a love that acts, a love that, that is prompted, a love that moves. But it's also a love that is controlled and directed. That's what he's getting at in the rest of verse 9 when he says, I pray that your, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. Read it. Controlled and directed by knowledge and discernment. He uses two words to describe the, the, the features of the kind of love that is to bubble over. It's marked on the one hand by knowledge, and, and that's not physics we're talking about here, not that kind of knowledge, not information, not data, but a, it's a word in the New Testament that always refers to the things of God. It's knowledge about the things of God. The things of, it's a spiritual knowledge. It's a theological knowledge, a God-centered knowledge that has to do with what God thinks, about what God values. That's the kind of love that Paul wants to see in you, a love that is guided and informed by what God thinks. So you, on the one hand, you've got that kind of theological knowledge of God on the one hand and discernment on the other, which really has more to do with the application of that knowledge in certain circumstances. Think of wisdom. 
So I've called it in the sermon title, A Discerning Love. We might call it a wise love, a love that is wise, a love that is shaped and formed by biblical categories. And that comes over time. (laughs) It really does. It doesn't come with one more class. It comes with an orientation of your life. Wanting to know what what God is like, who he is, the attributes of God, his actions in the world, his purposes, his intent. That kind of knowledge formed and guided by the discernment that situations call for. It's an informed love blended with knowledge and discernment. It's clear-sighted. It is sober-minded. And we're going to begin to see as we keep going how that works. Because what Paul is after is he, that's what he wants to see. And now the why. And it comes right on the heels of another purpose clause. This is my prayer that, and then he says, that your love would abound more and more in all wisdom and knowledge so that, here's the next ripple. Here's the next effect. So that was an immediate goal. Here is a subsequent goal that flows out of that. It's the ripple. Here's where that goes. It's to approve what is excellent. That's the phrase, that you may test or approve the things that matter. To approve what is excellent. The word dokizomai, for those that are interested, means to put to the test. We need to put something to the test. It was used to describe uh, the testing of coins. And the coins that, sur- that, that made it through the test, they were genuine currency. But it's also like the testing that we do when we, lay, say, test drive a car. We know that there's more than looking at the pictures of that car that is being advertised. You've at least got to kick the tires, right? I'm not sure what kicking the tires does, but you, you kick the tires and you, you open the hood and you, and you test drive. You, you've, you figure out how it functions and you learn about all of these features on the car. You test drive the car to approve that, yes, this is worth the amount of money that I'm about to sign over <laughs> or borrow, <laughs> It's, it's the testing is what Paul has in mind, approving what's worthwhile. He uses that same expression, the very same words, phraseology in Romans chapter 2, where the exact phrase is found, and it seems to, to be the things which really matter. That's what he's really hoping and praying that we would have the discernment and the knowledge and the ability to do, and that is to determine what really matters. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones put it like this, the whole art of life, I sometimes think, is the art of knowing what to leave out, what to ignore, and what to put to one side. You know, you can go a long way with that right there. (laughs) That will get you most of where you want to go. (laughs) The, The art, and it is an art, of knowing what to leave out what to pursue, what can wait, what to ignore. And we stumble our way and we, and we have skinned knees because we don't do it very well. We keep reading in Philippians and we know how Paul 
centers this in his own life where he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. There's a picture. He got it. He wants the church to have the faculty to be able to discern what is worthwhile, what is to be ignored, what to pursue, what is trustworthy. So I want you to be able to test, to approve the things that matter. And here's another purpose. In order that, verse 10, you may be pure and blameless. There's the second goal. So I want, you to, I want your love to abound more and more, marked with knowledge and discernment, that you can approve what is excellent, what's worthwhile and what's not, in order that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The fact is, if we don't get that first one right, if we lose our way in discerning what's really important, we may not be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Now, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So that's not really what he's after. That's really not what he's talking about. That one's fixed and determined. In Christ, you are clothed with his righteousness, justification, remember? You're justified by Christ. What we're talking about is now a life that reflects that. Paul says, be what you are. The Christian faith is the only, only religion that doesn't say, be something that you're not yet. <laughs> the Christian faith says, no, be who you are. Grow into this. Demonstrate it through the choices and the values that, it, that mark your life. And that's what Paul is eager to see. Pure refers to a sincerity, a lack of mixed motives, integrity with nothing to hide. That's what he's talking about. The pure, pure in that sense is owning, it up, owning up to the fact that I'm a sinner and I mess up and I, and I need grace and I need forgiveness and I can tell you that. That is sincerity. That is integrity with nothing to hide. That's the kind of purity Paul is pointing at here. But also a blamelessness, a word that appears only three times. And in 1 Corinthians, uh, it means to give no offense. That's what he's talking about when he says blameless. To live a life in such a way that you're not tripping up other people. That your life isn't an offense. We do know that the gospel offends. It offends our sense of right and wrong and our need. And, and we don't want to think that we're needed or we're unrighteous, but the gospel offends that. But what we are not to do is to live a life that, that the way we live offends. So he's talking about the inner person, pure, stemming from right motives, and the outer person, Lacking offense, living a life that is, doesn't offend others. And then the next phrase is filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That fruit of righteousness probably refers to the fruit consisting of the righteousness that marks one who belongs to Christ. And the reason we might say that is the Old Testament seems to lean in that direction. From, uh, from Psalm 1, <clears throat> we hear these words, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. That's the picture. Blessed is the man 
who is, who's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. That's the picture that Jeremiah picks up in Jeremiah 17. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and it is, and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. And it may be what Jesus had in mind when he spoke. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So Paul's prayer has these ripple effects. He wants, as that prayer is fulfilled, his friends to have the ability to discern and then practice in their Christian living the really important issues in their life as a community. But there's one more objective. It's bigger than anything we've talked about yet. You see, Paul wants to see our love abound more and more in knowledge and discernment, resulting in ability and a capacity to test and determine what's valuable, what's important, that we might be filled with the fruit of righteousness, resulting in the glory of God. You know, the glory of God is the difference between what you can do on your own and what will never happen unless God does it. <laughs> God is at work doing this, and that is the intent. But it doesn't eliminate the fact that there is a war going on in your heart and mind constantly. What Paul Tripp says to people about ministry in a book entitled Dangerous Calling is just as true about our our individual lives before God. So while he's talking about leaders, I'm not going to talk about leadership, but I'm going to talk about our lives. Using his words, the life you are living is never just shaped by your circumstances, It is always shaped by the true condition of your heart. It's important to acknowledge there's one big glory war occurring. In every situation, there's a war going on for what will magnetize your heart and therefore shape your life. Think about that. There's a war going on for what will magnetize your heart and shape Therefore, your life. There's a war going on between the awe of God and the awe inspiring things in the world around us. The awe of God will capture your heart, or you will be captured by some kind of created awe. A few weeks ago, we had the privilege of listening to and attending and beholding 
the Nashville Symphony with Joshua Bell. It was spectacular. And of those of you who've ever heard the Nashville Symphony or Joshua Bell and think of them together, <laughs> you will know <laughs> that it was awe-inspiring. So was the work of Johann Sebastian Bach. All of it. And every piece of church music that Johann Sebastian Bach composed, and some of his secular works, some of you will know, he included at the bottom the letters S-D-G. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. John Coltrane is a, a jazz musician. In 1964, composed a work entitled A Love Supreme. Listen to the liner notes. Dear listener, all praise be to God to whom all praise is due. Let us pursue him in the righteous path. Yes, it is true. Seek and ye shall find. Only through him can we know the most wondrous bequeathal. During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this has been granted through His grace. All praise to God. As time and events moved on, a period of irresolution did prevail. I entered into a phase which was contradictory to the pledge and away from the esteemed path. But thankfully, now and again, through the unerring and merciful hand of God, I do perceive and have been duly reinformed of His omnipotence and of our need for and dependence on Him. At this time, I would like to tell you that no matter what, it is with God. He is gracious and merciful. His way is in love through which we all are. It is truly a love supreme. This album is a humble offering to him, an attempt to say thank you, God, through our work, even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues. May he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. There's a picture of one who saw that his life was to be about and for the glory of God. That's the sort of thing that is at the heart of Paul's prayer and the end result. But how do we get there? How do we get there? How does that occur in my life and yours? Well, if you were listening carefully to the last verse of our Paul's prayer, he says, this is through Jesus Christ. That's how it comes. In one of the, G the stories that Jesus told in Mark 4, Jesus describes the tireless attention a gardener gives to his plants. But when the plant is full grown, the gardener has to confess his ignorance on, on what caused the growth. His careful tending is not insignificant. 
nor is it optional, for the untended plant will die. Yet something other than the men causes it to grow. And it is the same with fruits of righteousness. Our obedience, our discipline, as sketchy as it is, our hard work, as half-hearted as it sometimes is, is a part of the process that God uses as the context for our growth. He enlists us. He energizes us. He persuades us that this is important. But it's through Christ that the harvest is yielded. In the first 11 verses of chapter 1, there are no less than seven distinct references to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you, what is the knowledge that prompts this love? John tells us we love because he first loved us. That's where love comes from. We only love because he first loved us. Jesus says, he who is forgiven much loves much. And when we begin to understand the depth of which God has given his son and our, our, our desperate need for redemption that is fulfilled in Christ, we begin, that, that has an energizing impact in our lives, a new orientation. But the clincher for me is Paul's words in another epistle in 2 Corinthians 5, describing his own life and ministry. He says, we are constrained or compelled by the love of Christ. There's a compulsion. There is, there is an of course. <laughs> there is a, an appropriate response to that kind of love that constrains us, that, that orients us, that reshapes our lives from the inside out when it is vivid to us and when we understand it. But it's more than understanding that's in mind. I'm borrowing some words from an old pastor theologian, McLaren, describing something that I found helpful and I hope you will about that passage in 2 Corinthians. Christ's love to us is the constraining power. And that ours to him is but the condition on which that power works. But between the two, there comes something which brings that constraining love to bear upon our hearts. And so notice what Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 5 that is needful for Christ's love to have its effect. And it's these words. Because we thus judge. You can read it on your own later to, to get the whole thrust of this, but it's because we thus judge that we are compelled and constrained. And McLaren goes on to use a real vivid picture. Imagine a bugle on this side of the canyon. <laughs> And a, and a sheer rock wall on the other side. And as the sound leaves the trumpet and crosses the sound waves, cross the void and strike the rock wall, something occurs. Physics. 
The sound waves are received by the rock wall and register there before thrusting them back across the void. McLaren says the rock must receive the impact of the vibrations ere it can throw back the thinned echo of the music. Love must be believed and known before it can be responded to. So my question to myself, to you today, is that love believed and known? Does it register, has it registered in the rock hardness of your heart (laughs) that was once as hard as rock, (laughs) that is softened by the love of Christ, the, the, the apprehension of the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace that is ours in the gospel? And when that occurs, the sound, the echo of the music is sent forth. When Paul talks about the gospel, there's music that comes with it. Do you know the music? Do you know the sound of his voice? Do you know the tenor of his heart? The pursuits of his will in the world? Is your love informed, guided, bearing fruit? Only if and when your heart receives and then echoes the music of the gospel. We don't get there on our own. God opens our eyes to see what we will not see unless he does. God will finish the work that he began. And he will do so by opening your ears to hear, registering in your heart that then responds to his gracious and tender love that results in the glory of God. So in this passage, in conclusion, Paul confronts our status quo. I mean, doesn't he? He confronts our status quo. He, con- con- he confronts life as it is and says there's progress. There's, there's another movement. There's a direction of your life toward Christ. He confronts, but he also calls. And he's calling us into it. And the echo of his call is here today because you're here. You're here today. God's call is, has landed in your life and you're here to hear something of what it looks like and means to go forward together, to go forward toward Christ together. And we do so on our knees. It is a prayer after all. Uh, one commentator noted that before talking to the Philippians about some matters that need to increase, he talks to God about them and tells them so. <laughs> he orients their, their lives around God and his purposes, and it is God's work in us that we look to. So because it's a prayer, go to God your Father 
and ask Him for a lingering glimpse and taste of His love for you. His love poured out, lavished upon you through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Ask Him for a lingering glimpse of that love and then let it register in the hardness of your heart and mind. Ask Him for the capacity to love in response. For the seed of this abounding love, supported by the stakes of knowledge and discernment, yielding fruit of righteousness that comes, that marks the life of someone who is united to Christ by faith, resulting in glory and honor to God. That's Paul's plea, his, his fervent prayer. Would it be ours as we live our lives day to day, making progress at a pace that endures, knowing that we are loved by one who is committed to finishing the work he began. Let's pray to that end. Father, would you do that? Would you move us further toward you? Would you give us that kind of discernment that allows us to recognize what is worthwhile, what can wait, what can be ignored, what should be ignored, and what to give ourselves to? And, oh, Father, it is only when we see your love for us that we are energized and have the capacity to live such lives in this world, clinging to you, dependent upon you for all good things. We can't do this, but we thank you that you are committed to seeing us shaped and transformed, our lives reordered, redirected, our loves um, put in place, that we might live lives that mark the lives of those who've been united to Christ by faith. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Mm-hmm.